0: Tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency's Region 9 office covering the West Coast and the Pacific is on the island of Hawaii. Martha Guzman is making her first visit to Mauna Kea as the National Science Foundation has launched an environmental review of the proposed 30 meter telescope project under NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, Guzman is also here to get the word out about new federal money about to be uh, released to underserved communities to help with our water infrastructure, specifically getting 87 uh, or 82,000 people in the islands off of cesspools. We caught up with her as she touched down in Honolulu yesterday for meetings with state health officials about these issues, as well as with Red Hill. Looming is a plan for the Navy to begin removing some fuel in the underground storage facility that is in the pipeline system that is just weeks away. We talked with Guzman and Kathleen Ho, Environmental Deputy Director of the State Health Department. Here's Guzman.
1: We have seen a lot of progress from the Navy on remedying their drinking water violations. And of course, as you know, they're continuing to operate the Red Hill shaft, pump it and treat it. And that's a really good practice right now that we're continuing to monitor. It's currently a non-detect, but they're continuing to pump it so that we ensure there's no plume migration, so in addition to fixing the many other violations that they have there of the system itself. So that has made a lot of progress, but of course we're working
0: with the Department of Health on the
1: defueling plan, and I'll let Kathy talk about that.
0: Kathleen, I know that the military owes you additional information.
2: Yeah, so in our comment letter back to the Navy rejecting their initial defueling plan, we asked that they supplement the the defueling plan by september 7th so we fully anticipate that we will get a supplemental plan by september 7th
0: you know i know that uh, we just talked to the attorney with uh, viola alliance uh, you know they've amended their complaint and they're asking for a seat at the table and they want the navy to expedite the defueling plan because they're they're just afraid that you know there might be catastrophic failure at some point and you know they want to protect our resource I haven't seen the complaint, so I can't comment on that. But I mean, just the fact that this group feels, you know, more of a sense of urgency about defueling. They say that the plan, you know, calls for like up to six years and they just think that's just too long.
2: Yeah, As you know, the Department of Health and EPA really feels the urgency to defuel the tanks. However, we really believe that it has to be done in a methodical way so as to protect our resource.
1: The only other thing I'd add to that is that there are going to be removing fuel from the pipelines below Red Hill, so there is already going to be some initial defueling, if you will, from that source, and they're going to run an exercise on September 21st, and that's part of their urgency, why we need these plans before then, particularly the facility response plan to make sure there's all the spill prevention in place before running an exercise
0: okay so they haven't started doing that yet but it's going to happen soon
1: from below the red hill tanks yes many of these plans particularly the defueling plan, along with STCC
0: and the facility response plan need to be in by september 7th Martha, I know that you're here for a uh, task force meeting on the Big Island. Yes. Yeah. Tell us what you have yes. planned for uh, your meetings on the Big Island. One is, again, to highlight the
1: work we've been doing with the Department of Health on the cesspool replacement, both through this tremendous amount of funding that the bipartisan infrastructure law, as you know, double the amount that the state of Hawaii will be receiving for safe drinking water and clean water. That clean waters will what we refer to as the Pool septic sewer funding. And so this next year, we expect them to receive a little bit over $50 million for both of those programs. And on the cesspool side, we're very excited to be working with the state on a series of efforts, including enforcement, but more importantly, on helping low-income hawaiians be able to actually replace their cesspools with septics and we're going to do that in some of the targeted counties the county of kawaii county of hawaii and the county of maui and we're very excited about working on those areas we all know the tremendous impacts they have not just on the public health and of course the issues that our kids and everyone has when using, you know, not just the beaches, but all through the streams and so forth. And that relates to the second part of the visit, which is the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force. And, of course, test are related to the health of our coral reefs. And that's just one strategy of many that we're looking at to protect the reefs. And and really, this has been a, a learning curve for me to recognize the importance of this living a thing uh, Kathy was here teaching me about some of her work, a tremendous work in protecting the reefs here through the, throughout the state
0: and and the education she's done with the youth here. Kathleen, so you know, I don't know how fast these programs can be put in place, but will there be priorities for, let's say, the coastal communities if we're concerned about the impact on our reefs? We actually
2: have two programs that are going to come into play. The first one is the work that we're doing with the EPA to create a pilot program on the island of Kauai, and that program hopefully will be expanded in the next five years. What we're hoping to do with the program with Kauai is it's anticipated that we will get approximately fifteen million dollars over the next five years, and that will help the residents in successful conversions, which works out to approximately one hundred and fifty cesspools per year and they can receive approximately $20,000 in financial assistance. The second one is, as you may recall, last year, the legislature created another pilot program for the Department of Health to give grants to eligible owners of failing cesspools. And those cesspools, those failing cesspools are geographic locations was identified by the University of Hawaii, and the legislature gave us $5 million in Act 153 last year, and each eligible cesspool owner can receive up to $20,000 to fund their conversion of cesspools. And both of these, we anticipate the one that we got from the legislature last year. We anticipate the applications to be out by the end of September and applications, the implementation of the grant that we're getting, we're working with EPA on, we
0: anticipate that to be up and running around December of this year as well. Okay, so people who want to take advantage of this program, where should they go? To our Voh website will
2: be a good start, or you can also... They can also call our wastewater branch.
0: This is obviously a big priority for the EPA. We have, you know, just thousands of properties that need to be converted over. So this is a nice shot in the arm for these communities. But what else is on the horizon?
1: 82,000, I suppose. And you know, incentives uh, are one thing and certainly want to prioritize that for our lower income residents, but the other is enforcement. and. Particularly in our role on that is the large capacity festivals. At the date, since that was passed, the ban in 2005, 1,140 of those large capacity festivals have been closed. And just under my, you know, Six or seven months here thus far, the enforcement orders that have gone out throughout the Pacific have really been, you know, on a monthly basis where we're going after mostly industrial, some uh, commercial that really have the capacity to invest in this infrastructure. And most of the time, they're in places that could even connect to sewer. We're gonna use multiple strategies and starting with some of the larger contributors such as those industrial and commercial and getting them to upgrade either to connect to sewer or to you know help even build out a sewer. And we're very excited to see that Hilo's wastewater facility is gonna receive a much needed investment. And it's gonna to have to be coupled because you know, we do have an enforcement order there with greater participation from the community in the sewer system itself. If you walk around Hilo, Again, like I mentioned with some of the large capacity test schools, they're next to a trunk line. So we have to really focus and getting really enough of those service connections to have a sustainable treatment system there, to have that revenue base. As I mentioned, I'll be there for the Coral Reef Task Force, and I'll also be visiting Mauna Kea. I'll be getting a tour. I know you are aware that the NSF has proposed a NEPA review, and we are providing our environmental review of that. And so I have the opportunity to meet with the University of Hawaii as well as some of the Native Hawaiian leaders that, as you know, have extreme concern with more telescopes on the Mauna. Also, because of the bipartisan infrastructure law, and most recently this is going to get a boost from the Inflation Reduction Act, we have a tremendous amount of investment in environmental justice. And we will be we just hired somebody to be on island as well to really be our liaison with the community in a different level than we have in the past and kind of looking more proactively to the needs and certainly not being as uh, reactive as we've been in, in these recent months with situations like Red Hill. But it's going to give us an opportunity to really reengage with the community in a way that we haven't had the staff to do so And, of course, work in stronger partnership with the Department of Health
0: here. That was Martha Guzman, EPA Administrator out of the San Francisco Region 9 District, covering the Pacific. She's on the Big Island today for meetings around the Kona Reef Task Force and Mona Kea. We spoke with her about those issues and Red Hill while she was in Honolulu yesterday, meeting with Deputy Health Director Kathleen Ho, who we also talked with. (laughs) This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
3: Onihoa.
0: <laughs> Later in the show, we'll be talking about a proposed luxury development in South Kona. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're focusing on a community in that big island district. Mila is located close to the ocean, and according to a wooden sign in the center of the tiny peninsula, it is the last Hawaiian fishing village. It's isolated from the larger towns of Kailua, Kona, and Hilo, but it has its own lore. In 1962, part of the Elvis Presley movie, Girls, 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 was shot there. But nearly a century before the king, the village was paid a visit by a higher power. In 1968, a tsunami impacted the area, but amazingly, no lives were lost. While many of the homes were devastated, a church that was built on the shoreline was pushed 300 yards inland by the rushing sea with almost no damage to the structure. The church still stands today. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us its name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy, neireadhawaii.com.
0: vaccine helped to eradicate the crippling disease in the U.S. some 30 years ago. Dr. Jonas Salk's announcement of the vaccine came on CBS radio as the best defense against the disease that was known to paralyze both babies and adults. News reels back then hail the development. We flash back to that time.
5: Historic victory over a dread disease is dramatically unfolded at the University of Michigan. Here, scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that prove the Salk vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success. It's a day of triumph for 40-year-old Dr. Jonas E. Salk, developer of the vaccine. He arrives with Basil O'Connor, head of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which financed the tests. Hundreds of reporters and scientists from all over the nation gather for the momentous announcement. Proudly on hand, too, are Mrs. Salk and The son, who received the first injections. Chief evaluator, Dr. Thomas Francis, pronounces the vaccine tests up to 90% effective, and modest Dr.
3: Salk answers newsmen's questions. The great wealth of events that has accumulated in the experiences of so many is well represented in the report made this morning. While the contribution of some Well, it may seem greater than that of others, in one way or another. This gigantic experiment is symbolic of the equally great foundations, both scientific and philanthropic, without which it could not have been conceived or executed. And the entire world heralded the discovery which assured an end
1: to one of mankind's most dread
3: diseases.
0: Honolulu businessman and philanthropist John Henry Felix knew Dr. Jonas Salk and was intimately involved in the history of the Salk Institute and its research goals. Felix remembers going door to door with his mother, who was a passionate supporter of the March of Dimes effort to prevent the spread of polio. Parents feared for their children's health because of the lasting paralysis that polio brought with it. We talked to John Henry Felix this morning.
3: Well, my mother was very concerned about the uh, high incidence of polio. She was a a very committed uh, fundraiser for the March of Dimes in 1938, which was the year the March of Dimes was founded by our 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She was a very avid supporter of the president and uh, his efforts to um, control polio and finally develop a vaccine, which was funded by the uh, March of Dimes, which got its name, by the way, from a famed... Boardville actor, and uh, the name remains to this very day.
0: And so people just march up to that front door
3: and ask for dimes. Correct. And we had uh, little uh, cups at the restaurants and other places where people congregate so that they can make their contribution uh, their uh, dimes and dollars, whatever they had available.
0: So that's a very personal connection to the cause. I don't know what you're thinking these days, you know, as we see that, you know, there are cases that are popping up. You know, it's been found in the wastewater in London and New York. And in New York, Mm -hmm. it's in counties where the the vaccination
3: rates are low. These viruses are with us all the time. It's imperative that we're vigilant and uh, take advantage of the uh, vaccines that are available, especially in third world countries where they uh, are very reluctant to be vaccinated.
0: And so talk about the connection with the March of Dimes and the Salk Institute.
3: Well, the March of Dimes triumphed over uh, polio by developing two vaccines, one by um, Jonas Salk, um, which was the the vaccinated uh, technique, and the other by um, Dr. Albert Sabin, who developed the oral vaccine. And uh, that was more acceptable in third world countries. When the Mauchyans finally, china or you they decided to found a uh, research institute that would work on very basic research that would uh, develop vaccines to uh, cure uh, other maladies. And uh, that's where was the founding of the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. The Mauchyans came up with the initial funds. To make uh, the, the Institute possible, $80 million back in the 19, 1960s. And uh, the city of San Diego gifted the property which the Institute is currently located, which was a very generous contribution. The Institute to the day is researching uh, other opportunities to cure various uh, diseases. And you served on that board for a, a very long time? Uh, yes. Um, I was the uh, chairman of the March Hare for uh, five years, and the uh, chairman of the Salk Institute for five years. I worked very closely with uh, Jonas Salk and uh, Francis Crick, uh, who um, I appointed president, and uh, the man who. Uh, Who discovered DNA.
0: Well, I remember as a child, you know, getting those little sugar cubes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, this week we're still hearing from some of our listeners about how they've lived with polio. We talked earlier this week with uh, former Honolulu City Councilman Lee Waidu, who credits Mm -hmm. your encouragement as he lived with polio.
3: Yeah, he was one of my uh, Eagle Scouts involved with a program that I had, a voice card program Hotel management, and he was a senior at Binghamton uh, at the time, class president singing student. Uh, he is a perfect example of triumph over adversity.
0: Yes, and he really treasures uh, that encouragement uh, when he was young, right? He went on to Harvard. He was involved in public service, you know, for a long time and he's still involved in, in, uh, in the community. I understand he's writing a book about the Palolo Chinese home. Uh, so, Great. very active like you are, you know, and, and so gosh, I mean, what's your hope as you you know hear about the resurgence <clears throat> of, of cases in the U.S. when, you know, we eradicated it decades ago.
3: We we have to make the people of our nation more aware of uh, the dangers that uh, lurk in our water supply and uh, sewer system. These barriers are with us always, and uh, we always have to be vigilant in uh, addressing them. B.Y.D. is a perfect example of of triumph over adversity, and uh, I admire him uh, we served together on the city council. He served for 14 years, I served for 16. And we have a lot in common. But what he's done to um, better relations between the U.S. and China is very admirable. He, to this day, he's working on that effort. And I uh, admire him for that. I applaud his efforts.
0: Well, there are many in the community that applaud your efforts and your perseverance with the many causes that uh, you've mm-hmm. taken up. You know coming through this pandemic and seeing the concern that people have over vaccines is there i don't know any final thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners Mm -hmm. about polio and our history here in the islands
3: we have to make people more aware of um, what lurks uh, in in the uh Uh, these viruses are with us always we must be ever vigilant our board of health Our elected officials have to be very aware of this uh, danger and have to make the population keenly aware and make available vaccines that will control spread.
0: Well, we thank you for your time this morning, just to get the word out and to refresh people's memories about you know what we lived through and all the progress that we did make. You know, over
3: we have made progress. Yes. And uh, the, the Salk Institute to this day is looking for cures because their motto, I uh, had a point in uh, developing the motto, it's where cures begin. And uh, we ever have to be vigilant because uh, there's a lot out there that uh, is lurking in the shadows.
0: Well, we thank you again, John Henry, for your time.
3: Well, thank you very much, and you have a very nice day.
0: At 92, John Henry Felix is still very engaged in our community. The former Honolulu City Council member, businessman, and philanthropist served on the board of the Salk Institute and the National Board of the March of Dimes, which helped to create the Research Institute in honor of Jonas Salk, who is credited with creating the polio vaccine. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the Department of Health about addressing our low polio vaccination rates. Train testing on the tracks—that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Andre on the line today. Good morning.
5: Hey, Catherine. Happy Wednesday.
0: Happy Wednesday. I feel like she, whoo. whoo. <laughs> we got the train uh, moving on the tracks. We've all been waiting for a very long time for this phase.
5: Yeah. So this uh, this phase, the train really left the station on Monday. That's with the uh, 90-day trial running. It's really a minimum 90-day trial running session in which HART is going to test the stations, the trains, the personnel. They're going to you know, simulate simulate uh, normal running conditions as well as emergency scenarios, uh, the whole like. And it really has to be completed successfully before any sort of limited passenger service can start. And you'll be seeing more of these trains, the public will, uh, running from... East Kapolei, uh, over there by the Kroc Center, as far as Aloha Stadium. And Hart says, you know, potentially see trains running at all hours of the day and night. So just this really intensive uh, uh, phase that really we've been waiting to see. And it's been pushed back like so many other aspects of this project, but uh, it's finally here it's finally happening
0: yeah i mean i remember and you will probably remember when the train first hit the tracks and, and everybody was so excited there were little kids in the i think in the schoolyard they were jumping up and down and waving cause they saw something for the first time but yeah this this certain this phase has certainly been a long time in coming everybody's hoping for the best but we're really preparing for the worst because we just know how oh gosh it's just been torture um these many decades
5: yeah, it's always good to kind of hold your breath and consider all the, the various things that, that could go wrong. Now, hard is also trying to manage expectations, and, you know, they're saying that it's all but certain you're going to see the 90-day trial extend. You know, previously they were saying if there was any sort of a hitch, you had to reset that clock and start the 90 days over. Uh, they've, they've pretty much kind of couched that since then. And they're saying, well, you, you wouldn't have to entirely start it over, but there would be some sort of extensions uh, depending on uh, the problem that they hit. But, you know, the the, the city, uh, a lot of the city leaders and heart, they really want to eventually get passengers starting on the on those trains. And that could start, you know, sometime next year, even though it keeps getting pushed back, because they really they see that this is a project that's, you know, it's, it's fairly unpopular uh, among the local residents. And they they hope that if people get more acquainted with this project, with using the rail and, and seeing how it, it might work, uh, you know, they'll, they'll find a little more favor with it.
0: Now, you know, when we last talked to Lori, I know there was that whole issue of the cracks along the what they call the hammerhead portions of the columns, right? And uh, I yeah. thought, though, they were going to, you know, figure out, you know, what the reports uh, conclusions were before they started the... The testing, but but that hasn't come in yet.
5: Yeah, so that's a big factor, or could be. It's a potentially big factor in all of this. Where uh, basically the way Hart is describing it is, it's okay for these trains to continue testing. Along this same route where they're finding uh, potentially serious cracking in these hammerhead piers that support the stations. And the reason that the trains can do that is because they run along the center, which is being supported by the main columns, if you can kind of picture it. But where the cracking is happening is out on the edges of these piers that kind of extend out, right? So, so... At the moment, structural engineers are saying nobody should be out there, and they expect to have some recommendations on the fixes for this uh, at the end of next month, at the end of September. And the, the issue at hand is if the, the fix, if they have to build new peers from scratch, if too much time passes between this trial running and eventual passenger service, would they have to repeat some or all of this trial running that they just entered on Monday?
0: Yeah, so still lots of unknowns, but um, in, in uh, my understanding, by reading your story, is that uh, what they're going to simulate the weight of the passengers using weights, as opposed right. to real they're people. Put,
5: they're putting weights in in the train uh, to to simulate so that you have the right weight conditions during the trial running.
0: Yeah, yeah and so we'll just uh, have to get used to these trains uh, running on the guideways. You know, I mean, we see them here and there, but they're going to be running full speed, I guess, huh?
5: can be pretty extensive and you know just don't take any pictures while you're driving or <laughs> get too distracted that's what that's a big message that art's trying to get out there
0: too yeah yeah uh, obviously that uh, yeah don't take your eyes off the road uh, although you know i think we've managed to do it okay with the with the sign waivers during election so hopefully drivers <laughs> yeah. will uh, will figure it out we're well
5: prepped for this exactly <laughs> yes,
0: exactly but thanks so much Mar- marcel thanks Catherine. And that was reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. Uh, check out his stories on heart. Visit civilbeat.org.
4: for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Monday, September 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
6: Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Justin Zorn.
1: And I'm Lee Mars. We're co-authors of Golden.
6: Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the power of silence in a world of noise.
3: Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
0: Downtown, uptown, all upside down. That's the focus of The Long View with our contributing editor, Neil Milner. COVID has certainly turned everything on its head. Hi, Neil hi how are you good and so yeah we're going to be exploring downtown
7: yes we're going to be exploring downtown based on a piece in one of my favorite reading materials city lab and it's a piece by richard florida who is this well-known urbanist at the university of toronto who writes a ton uh is worldwide known and writes a lot about downtowns. so yeah this is about what's happened to downtown and how specifically how COVID has affected it, but even more important, downtowns have been changing and unchanging for years, and we tend to forget that. So he reminds us that, you know, the idea that downtown is a central business district, which is what our downtown in Honolulu was like almost up to the time that I arrived here in the 70s, it was a central business district that's where things happened. that's where a lot of shopping happened that's where the big stores were and and those kinds of things movie theaters but that's just a small moment in time when it comes to the history of downtowns and you can see it in, in other places and as well as here the idea that downtown has been a central business district like that is that's a fairly short time in history it happened when people began to wanna move away from downtown and live in the suburbs. It happened when people didn't mind commuting very much and when the big deal was driving cars into the city as commuters. And when Honolulu went through this, the only new housing that was built in what really was downtown is what at the time was called urban renewal. Urban renewal meant ripping down the places that poor people lived and putting up public housing that segregated people by income if not by race even more and even those things were considered you know poor substitutes there's a picture in a, the uh, federal magazine the federal brochure that was advertising these kinds of things that were being built and you know what downtown these things look like medium rise and so on And the picture was of a ranch home with a palm tree in front of it. Like, that was the ideal, but you're not going to live with it. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with a downtown that for a long period of time was kind of deserted. had a lot of businesses in them, but you went in and you went out. But that's begun to change. It's changed nationwide because of COVID, because people quit working downtown. Um, And it's changed in ways Florida points out is really beneficial in terms of reinvigorating downtown. Downtowns are now developing into what he says used to be central business districts into what he calls central connectivity districts.
0: So you still have people, what, living down there or? Well,
7: you
3: have a a, a
7: number of things happening because of people working away from downtown and not likely to be coming back in the same number as before because a lot of the office workers don't have to work downtown. You have vacant spaces companies are giving up all or some of their office space and that's true nationally it's even true here that creates vacancies our vacancy rate downtown is not anywhere near as big as it is in some other cities it creates vacancies and one of the things those vacancies are being used for is refitting them repurposing them for housing so you're getting a little bit of housing downtown you're not getting new high-rise office buildings at all that's probably a thing of the past you're also getting places that people gather at it's a little hard to see in our downtown because it's not spectacular in the sense of envisioning that but you're getting little galleries you're getting places where people sit to do their work uh coffee houses and that kind of thing downtown is becoming a place where office workers who used to work down there all the time may occasionally gather not in the office space itself, which is gone, but at coffee places, maybe through Zoom to talk about stuff because face-to-face or close to face-to-face work is so important. So you see those those kinds of things uh, happening. And what, what Florida points out is that this is bringing change all over the United States, and it's bringing a kind of growth that You've got companies giving up office spaces and it's becoming other kind of spaces. You've got downtown becoming places that people gather. And you have work moving into older suburbs, um, old areas that are not that far from downtown with smaller office space because people don't want to commute. And people like to live closer to downtown. It makes getting around easier. Well,
0: when you talk about Kaka'ako, right, the whole live, work, play. Yeah, see,
7: now look at downtown Honolulu. You have to include Kaka'ako because, in a sense, we were lucky enough to have relatively vacant and relatively inexpensive to build on land close to downtown. So let's call that greater downtown. And you see what's happening down there, especially the part that's close to downtown not the much more wealthy, much more high-rise, wealthier, closer to Moana. So what you got down there is a kind of development of a lot of social connectivity, a lot of young people working down there, a lot of commuting by bikes, the wiki bikes and so on. And so that's how Honolulu has begun to change in regard to downtown. You're not going to see, I don't think, a lot of high-rise apartment buildings downtown, that seemed to stop. It seemed to reach a a limit, and then Kaka'ako came along.
0: Well, I only know of one high-rise that's converting from office space to residential, and I was told they're doing it floor by floor. So people are still living in the building. And uh, I was downtown last night and was looking at a co-working space, which was bustling before. And, you know, granted, I was there after hours, but it looked like they had some vacancy rates. You know, if everybody's working from home, during COVID, you know, what does that mean to those working spaces?
7: Right. I think what Florida is suggesting and anybody doesn't know what co-working space is in it's where you don't need a big office. You're not working in a big company. You have a place where you can work like office space, probably a few other amenities like coffee and so on. But I think what happens in some places is that the co-working space comes back now that the COVID scare is a little less because it's a place for connectivity. It's a place where you can hold meetings with colleagues, formal and informal meetings. And so one of the judges of that is gonna be whether these places continue to be vacant or not, because of course they virtually closed down if not literally closed down during the, the really serious part of the pandemic. So it's a a work in progress, and Florida is pretty optimistic about these kinds of changes, maybe overly optimistic, but at least it gives you an idea of the kind of things to watch for. And it reminds us that the destruction of downtown, you know, if you look at what downtown used to be like with uh, big stores, you know, the difference between downtown being thought of as Macy's, Mm-hmm. Or before that, Liberty House and downtown being thought of as Starbucks is an important difference. But I don't think downtown is gonna flourish as a huge residential area. But if you consider Kakaako, which makes a whole lot of sense that it, it very much do so. What Florida doesn't do, and I think it's important to remember, it's not clear how this affects lower-income workers, blue-collar workers, service workers. This is all about people who were working at home, might continue to work at home, and it maybe increases the possibility of affordable housing in the downtown area, but it kind of ignores that kind of issue, which troubles me because one of the things that I've seen in some downtown areas in other cities is that this kind of higher-end younger people development gets all the attention as they renew the city but forgetting about the fact that some people can afford to benefit from that more than others
0: yeah when your office is everywhere yeah where does that leave you and where does that leave downtown
7: (laughs) yeah exactly and how downtown can benefit from that but only certain people are likely to benefit or, or certainly more than others
0: yeah something to think about but all right well thank you so much neil
7: you're welcome take care
0: We've been talking to Neil Milner, our contributing editor, on a segment we call The Long View. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Not every bird has a great name, but you'll hear no complaints from the melodious laughing thrush. Here's your Manu Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart.
6: Melodious laughing thrush, or Chinese huame, are one of those birds that are much more often heard than seen. They're a pretty good size for a songbird, about 9 inches long, which is the same size as a cardinal. They're mostly rusty brown with a long yellow bill and a very distinct white eye ring and white streak behind their eyes that makes them look like they're wearing glasses. Huame are very hard to spot because of their habit of loving to hang out fairly close to the ground in dense shrubs but they make up for this shyness around humans by belting out one of the most beautiful songs of any non-native bird in Hawaii. This song, which can be described as a long series of paired notes and melodic whistles with some mimicry of other bird songs mixed in, can be heard from over a hundred meters away and is generally sung by males to attract the opposite sex. Even if you've never seen this bird, there's a good chance you've heard it. laughing thrush are native to southern China and southern Asia and were first brought here as cage birds by cane workers from China in the late 1800s legend has it that they first escaped into Honolulu when they were released from their cages during a great fire in 1900 though they may have been established even earlier than that they've since been introduced and are common on the islands of Hawaii Maui and Kauai and are much less common on Oahu Huame can be found from the coastline up to over 6,000 feet elevation and eat a variety of insects and fruits, mostly from non-native plants. Because they can spread fruits from invasive plants like Myconia and Clydemia into our native forests, and despite their beautiful song, they were placed on the State of Hawaii Injurious Wildlife List in 2014. For Hawaii Public Radio,
4: this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at Friends of
0: For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about what some might say (laughs) was a divine intervention in the South Kona community of Miloli'i. The self-proclaimed last Hawaiian fishing village lies along the coastline in the shadow of the southwest slope of the 13,000-foot Mauna Loa. Lava flows from the volcanic mount have influenced the area for centuries. In addition to those threats, the community has also seen its share of peril from the ocean. In 1868, a tsunami devastated the village, but according to historical accounts no lives were lost in addition the surging waters carried a church 300 yards inland eventually settling it down gently with little damage the name of that church Haole Kamanao, Kamanao, is the answer to today's backyard quiz the church was built in the 1850s by john d paris a missionary who was on his way to uh, oregon when an up Rising there forced him to stay in the islands. Altogether, Paris built nine churches throughout South Kona, some of which are still standing. And congrats to our winner today, Brianna Rodriguez of Hilo. You got it right. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz you'd like to share, write to talk back at
4: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, an immersive exhibition of flowers and plant materials, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, celebrates the abundance and vulnerability of nature, open September 17th. I'm Bert Lam, today on Bite Marks Cafe we'll learn how
2: some companies are adopting a hybrid remote work environment. We'll find out about the best practices to optimize the work team regardless of whether they're in the office or working from home. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
4: Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health. Registration for the Pacific Rim Safety and Health Conference is now open at labor.hawaii.gov slash hiosh slash 2022 conference.
0: Surprise, surprise, surprise. Residents of Milili'i got wind of a proposed luxury resort development just north of their town. And they're not too happy about it. Uh, HBR's
8: Kube Hirishi joins us to tell us more. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, Yes, this uh, preliminary work has begun on this 324-acre luxury resort development in Opihale, so just north of uh, Miloli'i there in South Kona. Uh, Grading and grubbing begun on a portion of that. And this land is owned by Kona Development Partners, a Beverly Hills-based developer that bought up the land in 2018. Uh, Much of the information circulating in the community about this project is coming from the developer's website, uh, which was uh, designed to solicit investors for the project, uh, which is a common occurrence in, in uh, developments of this of this size. So uh, according to the website, it describes uh, the Kona Estates at Opie Halle project as a luxury estate community that's going to include uh, 60 homes and then a 40-villa luxury lodge with a host of amenities, including a heliport. Uh, so this website, uh, com had, had come up and, and uh, folks in in and around the community, including Miloli'i but also those in South Kona, uh, sort of, you know, st- began to think, is this already up? What's happening? It looks like that we see some um, bulldozers out there near the uh, 90, uh, 93, 91 mile marker. Uh, did we miss our chance to, to, to have our say in this? And so uh, as far as the The uh, planning director, uh, or the planning department with Hawaii County, uh, there is no entitlements on the property, there's no permits. Uh, The land is currently zoned agriculture, Uh, so uh, the developer would need to request a zone change, and then they'd also need to, because of the area, uh, acquire a special management area permit for the lodging operation for commercial uh, work there uh, along the coast, and then not to mention the challenge in South Kona of finding enough water for a development of this size Uh, we spoke to jeff darrow deputy planning director at hawaii county who says you know from a planning perspective the developer has a lot of hoops to jump through before shovels hit the soil
7: my understanding is there is no county water available in that area, so if they did proceed, they would have to build this dedicated system to be able to provide water to this project. Before they can do that, of course, they have to submit an application to the planning department. This would go before the Leeward Planning Commission, and then ultimately to the Hawaii
3: County Council for approval on the change of zone.
0: You know, usually, you know, you, if you want buy-in from a community, you kind of want to let them know ahead of
8: time, like, "Hey, this is what we're planning." And that was, um, you know, Darrow had mentioned that a representative uh, that was hired uh, about a year ago to deal with uh, the community and and be sort of that liaison. Uh, that they had come to the the planning department, and the planning department had you know encouraged them because they had been receiving uh, complaints about the the website specifically. It said, you know, it's not uh, necessarily part of the process right now because there are are no sort of active permit applications in. So once these applications are filed um, uh, with the county, then it'll trigger the need for public hearings, both at the Leeward Planning Commission meeting, but also before the Hawaii County Council and any other approvals that are needed for the special area permits and any other uh, type of development. So there will be opportunities, but because the developer has not yet gotten to that point, I think the community got a little alarmed that we missed it but that is not the case and so uh darrow had mentioned and encouraged the developer to seek out the community you know be more proactive and get out there before any of this gets out uh, native hawaiian educator kuka Hakala, whose family owns land in nearby ocean view uh, says you know seeing this investor way- website made her made her angry
1: I was just totally, you know, blown away by somebody, um, you know, acting like this is all in the bag, you know, this is all already approved and all we need is your money and you can move in (laughs) next week. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there was really, you know, it was just a very slick, you know, uh, advertising as if all this has been already approved, as if there was no community concerns, etc.,
8: So uh, there is no uh, process yet, no application in there for the community to get involved. Uh, Hopefully the developer does make that that outreach happen. But uh, Mailek David, Hawaii County Council Chairwoman who uh, represents this community says, you know, the proposed development also doesn't fit with the current community development plans, which calls for preserving much of this area in agriculture and open space, so we'll see. Right, and you know, we have most of the resorts, you know,
0: up north. Exactly, (laughs) and
8: that's a big part of that was that the community's vision for this area was to sort of keep that open space and agriculture um, intact. If I recall, there was one that was proposed. It was a Shidiak developer uh, for
0: uh, up above there by uh, Kalakikua, but that Ah. didn't go anywhere. But same kind of thing, pushback, concern.
8: Exactly, and we'll see this thing play out, but I think that idea of the, the community getting involved is just that uh, we have a petition right now online with uh, nearly 2,000 uh, signatures against and opposed to the project, so hopefully that conversation gets started soon.
0: Okay, all right, well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mm-hmm.
8: We have been chatting with
0: HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi about a proposed resort development in South Kona. Check out her story on org. But up tomorrow, we hope to hear from the Department of Health about the vaccination rates for polio in the state. If you have a story about polio that you'd like to share, leave your feedback on our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something on our show, find all of our shows uh, archived on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.